Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. Rabbi Knopf, am I correct in deducing this is your bar mitzvah portion? It is. Oh, no pressure. Excellent. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> i my speech if you want. We'll see how they match up. This week is the second in a roughly three and a half Parsha stretch that recounts perhaps the most famous, significant, and repeated story in our history, the Exodus from Egypt. This month of readings begins with the evil Pharaoh taking the throne and Moses being born and ends with the crossing of the Red Sea. This week, we read the heart of the story as we see Moses and his brother Aaron return to Egypt, meet with Pharaoh for the first time, do some magic tricks for Pharaoh and his advisors, and ultimately experience the first seven of the 10 plagues. Again, this is a very well-known story. At a minimum, we read it at the Passover Seder each year, though I suspect most of us could at least repeat the highlights from memory. As an aside, and possibly worth a devour of its own, so ideas for a future, the ancient Egyptians saw the Nile River itself as a god. That means the first plague was, as far as they were concerned, literally making God bleed. A powerful opening shot that. What I want to talk about, though, is what happens after the sixth plague, shlim, or boils. This is one of the more controversial moments in the Torah, and certainly in this story. It's one I've been asked about many, many times in my eight-plus years of teaching in our religious school. You see, for the first five plagues, Moses goes to Pharaoh after each one. He asks Pharaoh let the Israelites go free. Pharaoh agrees to something, but then we get some variant of paro et libo. Pharaoh hardens his heart and goes back on his word. What happens after the sixth plague? Well, the first part's the same. Moses goes back, he asks Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says yes. But then what happens? adanoi et paro. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh has no say in the matter. God makes the choice for him. Would he have backed out on his word? Maybe, probably, who knows? We never get to find out. Immediately, this feels wrong. It's not just, it's not even fair. What if Pharaoh was going to say yes? There's some pretty terrible stuff still to come, culminating in the death of the firstborn. Remember, that's all of the Egyptian firstborn. Could they have lived without God's interference? Whatever happened to free will? This is a question rabbis, scholars, and philosophers have wrestled with for millennia. So naturally, I'll try to explain it in the next 10 minutes or so. <laughs> Free will is vitally important in Judaism. We are taught, after all, our actions have consequences. What we do means something. The Torah wouldn't waste space detailing potential rewards and punishments for our actions, or inactions as the case may be, if both paths were not available to us. Frankly, the commandments would be, I don't know, instructions. Without free will, we don't need to be commanded to do something because we don't, have, we don't need that imperative behind it. We simply need a statement of actions. Furthermore, without free will, morality cannot exist. Without free will, a murderer killing someone isn't amoral. And a donor giving a kidney to someone isn't moral because they have no choice in the matter. If free will doesn't exist, if people don't have the ability to make that choice, there is no right or wrong. People are just doing what they must do. The Torah itself speaks to this in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim. 
God says, I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life, an actual choice. One of our greatest scholars, Rambam, or Maimonides, tackles this too, saying in his Laws of Teshuvah, do not let enter your mind that which is said by the stupid people among the Gentiles and the boorish among the Jews, that God decrees from the start whether a person is to be righteous or wicked. In fact, our tradition teaches that for all the power and abilities and wonderful things that angels have, they lack free will. They are simply automatons, carrying out the task for which they were created. Nothing more, nothing less. And yet, that one trait, that free will, is so precious that we say we got a good deal. Or we can look at things from another perspective that I'm familiar with, a legal one. For many crimes in our country, you have to have the mens rea, literally the guilty mind to commit a crime. You must be able to form the requisite intent to do the crime in order to be guilty. If you can't form intent because you lack the ability to make a choice, can you truly be guilty? Our answer to all this is definitive and unequivocal. Free will exists. It must exist. It dictates how we interact with the world. Scholars differ on how that free will exists or manifests, excuse me. For instance, medieval philosopher Gersonides said that God knows what options we'll choose from, but doesn't know what we'll choose. The, exist the existence of free will is, in fact, one of the answers to theodicy, the philosophical question of how an all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful God can allow evil to exist. Put simply, the existence of evil is one of the trades we make to allow for free will to exist. One last point to make before I promise we'll get back to Pharaoh. It is perfectly possible to live a completely happy life without free will. This is actually the premise behind the first Matrix movie, aka the good one, where robots keep humans docile and happy by giving the people imagined lives where the people have no say despite thinking they do. The reason we need free will to exist is because of the commandments I talked about before. Once we have responsibilities, once we are morally required to do things, we have to have free will. If we're not able to actively choose to carry out those responsibilities, the act of carrying them out itself becomes trivial. It's not to simply do a thing, we must have an intent behind it. Okay, so free will exists. The existence of free will is important, important enough for any of the trade-offs I listed before to be worth it. If that's true, and I would argue it is, then how can this moment with Pharaoh, this absolutely critical moment in the story of the Exodus and our people exist with free will entirely taken away? As I said before, this is something many people have struggled with for millennia. Some scholars flip the traditional reading on its head. They look at the chazak, the chet zayin kuf root, used for what God does to Pharaoh's heart, and go for the literal translation, which is strengthen. In this argument, God isn't taking away Pharaoh's free will, but it's giving Pharaoh strength to resist coercion by outside forces, i.e. the plagues. In this argument, only Pharaoh deciding to free the Israelites by his own honest choice counts. So the strengthening is simply a counterbalance on the influence of the plagues. I appreciate the answer is going for, and it's very appealing, but I think it's a little bit too cute of an answer for me. And I think it avoids the hard question. And also, I don't know why God would bother with a plan that even a James Bond villain would call overcomplicated. I, I think the answer to this question regarding Pharaoh's heart can be found in a combination of two things that I've read. The first comes from the book Essays on Ethics by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. A phenomenal Hanukkah present for my mom this year. In his essay on both this Parsha and topic, Rabbi Sachs points out we tend to view free will as a binary. Have it or we don't. But it isn't necessarily the case. We make choices that eventually cause a loss of free will. In a physical sense, think about addiction. The first drink, the first cigarette is a choice, 
But once addiction gets hold of you, the choice is gone. Your free will no longer exists. And it's not just physical. Think about telling the lie, even a minor one. Sure, it's just that at first, but it becomes part of who you are. You have to lie more and more to keep it up until it controls your life. You want to talk about control? We've seen it happen in companies. Elizabeth Holmes made the initial choice to lie about the machines Theranos created, and the Enron executives made the choice to cook the books. But things like that quickly infected the corporate culture and became part of the corporate identity. An initial choice spun out of any sort of control. Even worse, in political parties and countries, millions of lives can be affected or even lost by this sort of thinking. You make the big lie core to your political identity, you make mistreatment of others the basis of your governing, and it will spread and manifest in ways you cannot control. Even if you eventually see the issue, you no longer have the ability to make the change. It is part of your party or your nation. And as soon as you give people the opportunity to disassociate from their actions, to not have to make a personal decision, it becomes much easier to do terrible things. The second part of the interpretation I like comes from many legendary figures, including both Nachmanides and Rachel Akish. They say, quite simply, the last four plagues had to occur because that's what Pharaoh deserved for the terrible things he did. That by this point, it was too late for Pharaoh to just say enough and escape punishment. Going back to the law, this makes some sense. If a person breaks into a jewelry store and smashes five out of six cases, then they stop when the police get there, they don't suddenly get a lesser punishment just because that last case is intact. Yes, lawyers in the room, I know there are circumstances where that could matter. We're going to put that aside for now. Or think about a moment I think we've all had where you do something and immediately regret it. Your brain may regret the thing as your mouth says it or your body does it, but that regret doesn't mitigate what you said or did, and you still have to take responsibility for that thing. Feeling bad partway through doesn't absolve you of wrong. So how do I merge these two ideas into one cohesive lesson and understanding? Like this. By making the choices Pharaoh did, by not only enslaving the Israelites, but also creating a nation where slavery was acceptable and expected, he created a culture that built an insulated space where the cries of the oppressed could no longer be heard. Pharaoh may have enslaved the Israelites, but in doing so, he enslaved himself. He was a prisoner of the values he honed for his country, and had gone so far down that path, he removed his own free will. In doing that, he committed years and years of atrocities against the Israelites. It was easy to do, which is going with the flow. The Israelites weren't Egyptian. They were some group of foreigners, barely human. So it was fine that whatever bad things happened to them kept happening. There was a choice long ago, but Pharaoh surrendered his free will way before the plagues began. When you look at things from this perspective, this plague, the sixth one, becomes a tipping point. At that moment, things are in motion that can no longer be controlled by Pharaoh or anyone, and the story is barreling towards its natural conclusion. Pharaoh had free will originally, as did all of the Egyptians, but they became habituated to a pattern of bad choices and suffered the consequences of a lifetime of bad decisions. When this became so intertwined with their identity as a nation and as people, up to and including Pharaoh himself, the outcome was predictable and inevitable. Despite the terrible things kept happening to them, they continued to forge ahead with their bad acts and choices. They were in so deep, they simply couldn't see any other way. In this way, Pharaoh's own actions became his and all of Egypt's undoing. God may have hardened his heart, sure, but Pharaoh's choices long ago made that moment possible, as he was well down that path on his own, by that point the only path he could see. Pharaoh could no more stop the terrible things from happening to him than you could stop a dropped vase from shattering, even if you feel really bad about dropping it. Free will exists in our lives, and every day we make decisions, big and small, that illustrate that. At the same time, those choices influence our future. 
They open some doors and seal others forever. At some point, you may realize a choice you made long ago is as distant as the stars and isn't accessible anymore. The path that decision put you on may not have much left in the way of options. Things that were once choices are now simply rote actions that we do without thought or consideration, and many of those initial choices have disappeared. We have free will, but our free choices have consequences. Our meets vote are more than just commandments. As I said before, they are responsibilities. When we use our free will to choose to uphold those responsibilities and do what's right in the world, and if we can all manage that, those paths suddenly seem far less scary and those outcomes more positive. If we can do that, if we find ourselves part of this kihila, this community, we can all be forces for good. Shabbat Shalom. This has been the TBE Richmond Podcast. Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. Until next time, shalom y'all.